Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. If you would, pull your Bibles out and go to Revelation chapter 7 as we continue walking through this. And as you're uh, turning to that, I am just excited to, to be here this morning, excited to read God's Word, and I hope you are as well. You see, as we left the Scriptures last week in Revelation 6, the sixth seal of God's scroll had been opened. And this is a scroll that is believed to have God's entire plan for His created universe. God's church has been raptured at this point. Death, famine, wars, and earthquakes have been unveiled like no one has ever experienced. And it becomes so bad that people actually are praying for mountains to fall upon them to give them relief. And it is at this point that God chooses to hold off the opening of the seventh seal to reveal his plan for the 144,000. So the question is, who are they? There are many people over the years that have claimed that either they are the 144,000 or they will be the 144,000. I'll go ahead and tell you that the things I say today you will find on the Internet, many things that contradict that. But I am just using Scripture to defend Scripture or anything above that. I'm not saying that there's not other people that have other theories. But I'm telling you, this is what the Lord has laid on my heart according to the Scriptures of who these 144,000 are, and also why they are important. So as we look at the 144,000, there are two main camps of thought about who these 144,000 are. Many believe that they are Christ-believing Jews, that the 144,000 are Jews that who lived during the time of tribulation, and God uses them to bring people unto himself. And then there are other people that look at these 144,000 as a metaphor for the church, for people like you and I. And so we'll look at both of those. So though Scripture doesn't specifically say who they are, certainly it points to a specific direction. And I would say if there are things in Scripture that Scripture doesn't specifically say that this is this and this is that, there's a reason for it. And God has got plenty of reasons for what he has written and given to John in this vision today. So let's read verses 1 through 3 right now. And it says, Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And it shouted to those four angels who had been given power to harm land and sea. Wait, don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the forehead of his servants. So we have, we have read that passage before, and there's been many different things said about that. There have been even movies made about these kind of things that are so far from Scripture. But let's look at a few things. Number one, when it says the four corners of the earth and the four winds, we know in Scripture that winds and storms were often a parallel or alliteration for the fact that that would be some type of, of struggle, some type of punishment, some type of God's judgment. And so we see here when it says the four corners of the earth, 
Back then when they said that, that would be much like us saying today, from all four points of the compass. And so when you look at this passage, you see you get the vision of these angels, these four angels getting ready to unleash terror on this world. But then this angel that God sends holds it back and says, whoa, wait a minute. There's something that God needs to do because this angel is carrying God's seal. And we see here that Jesus speaks of this time in our future. Jesus himself spoke about this moment in Matthew 24, 14. And I'll put the, the verse on the screen for you. It says, And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations, all people will hear it and the end will come. So again, why has Jesus not come yet? So that the good news can be preached and people can be received Unto himself. And this is where you have heard it said that Jesus is not going to return until everyone hears the gospel and has a chance to accept it or reject it. And while we cannot know the specific measurable pace of how long that will take, we cannot measure, you know, let's let's try to figure out who that last person is. Because, again, we don't know when Jesus Christ is going to come back. But we don't know, but that means that we must live every day as if Jesus is returning. We must be bold enough to share our faith and prepare for this glorious event. You see, every believer in every generation should be determined to grow spiritually, much like an athlete that trains in the big game. You are here today, and I fully believe that God is going to bless you. This is like going to the gym, even when you don't feel like it. This is like going and hearing God's word preached, and maybe something is going to resonate with you that's going to give you strength, maybe even today or this week. As we continue to look at the scripture, we see that this Seal is the seal of God. It is the seal of the living God. Now, in Scripture, when you see a seal, a seal does two things. The seal, it will indicate ownership, and it will also indicate protection. A seal will indicate ownership and protection. Ephesians 1, 12 through 14, by the way, uh, just a side note, you can read it later, but Ephesians 1, chapter 12 through 14, it talks about you and I, who are believers in Christ, who are Gentiles. In other words, those that are not Jews, we are sealed. In other words, death cannot touch us. Nothing can touch us unless God allows it. We are sealed by him through the Holy Spirit. So when you read about these 144,000 being sealed with God's seal, you, my friend, if you are a believer in Christ, are sealed as well. And so the seal is the name of God. And a similar seal was given to the righteous just before Jerusalem was judged in Ezekiel. And the seal is a Hebrew letter, T-A-U, Tau. And so when you write it out, it is a T. So imagine this, people having the sign of God, T, on their forehead, which looks a lot like a cross. So this has been done before. This has happened in history. So we see a precedence of this sealing process in the Old Testament. If you want to see your first example of God's sealing of his believers, you could go back and look at the whole uh, intercourse with Moses and Pharaoh. 
or the fact that all of these plagues would come and they would affect Egypt, but God's people who were living in Goshen were unaffected by those plagues. They were sealed. They were protected. God protects his own. So now we understand that the 144,000 are the Jews who believe in Jesus and are elected by God to carry out his special tasks in those days. And here's the thing. You don't have to go there. You can write it down or look for yourself. If you go all the way over to Revelation 14, verse 1, it says the 144,000 make it through the tribulation because they are standing in heaven with Jesus. So throughout the whole tribulation, these 144,000 specially elected Jews by God that are prepared, that are sealed, and that are working for God are going to make it through this entire tribulation. Those who are the 144,000. Now, how does that comprise? Well, the true identity of the 144,000 can be found in verses 4 through eight, he says, and I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. A hundred and forty four thousand were sealed from all tribes of Israel. Five verse five from Judah. There was twelve thousand from Reuben. There was how many? Twelve thousand from Gad. Twelve thousand and on and on. We see from Asher, from Naphtali, from Manasseh, from Simeon, from Levi, from Issachar, from Zebulon, from Joseph and from Benjamin. Twelve tribes bringing descendants of 12,000 each equals 144,000. Now, the thing is, is that we don't know who they are. I mean, there have been studies. People are trying to use DNA to see if they can decipher who is from that tribe. But literally, this is a, a Middle East thing. People who are descendants from the tribe of these Israelite tribes will be in the 144,000. The 144,000 is not a figurative term. It does not represent the church because the church at this point has already been raptured. This is not some symbolism of the church. This is 144,000 Bible-believing, God-fearing, loving Jews that are sealed by God to represent Him. Through the Great Tribulation. Because yes, during the Great Tribulation, there will be people that will have the opportunity to come to Christ. It's not like today. Today you've got it pretty easy. The, the Lord convicts you. You pray. You repent. You receive. And that's it. But can you imagine doing that while all of this other stuff is going on? You would think with earthquakes and floods and all of these things that will be coming, people will be flocking to the church. But no. They will be blind. They will dig in even deeper. There will be a spiritual blindness that people, they won't see God in the midst of all of this. And if you notice, if you go back and look at all of those tribes, and this is just side note, so if you want to take a nap for about three minutes, go ahead and you can come back with us in just a minute. But if you look through all 12 of those tribes, the tribe of Dan is not mentioned. The tribe of Dan is not mentioned. Why is the tribe of Dan not mentioned? We don't know for sure, but we do know this. Of all the tribes, the 12 tribes in Israel, the tribe of Dan was the first one to introduce idolatry to God's people. They were the first tribe to bring in other idols and try to worship them along with God. And God was not having it. So we see the tribe of Dan is left out. Now, we can say, however, that the tribe of Dan 
was the first to be introduced into habitual idolatry. If you want to read about that later, you can go to Judges chapter 18. And prophecy does, however, tell of their redemption, of God forgiving them. Because if you go to Ezekiel 48, you see that after the thousand-year reign of Jesus, after the tribulation, you see that they are included in the tribes there. And one other thing, there's a tribe, there's a name, not a tribe, but there is a name that is slighted. If you go down and you look at uh, verse 8, from Zebulun, from Joseph, Joseph and from Benjamin. Now, Joseph had two sons. They were Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh is mentioned. Ephraim is not. Instead of mentioning Ephraim, they mention the father. So by, by attributing the father to that, Ephraim's name is left out. Now, I don't know about y'all, but if you were, if, if, if we were printing a family name or, or a list of families on a great register for everybody to see, to purchase and to, to have in their house, and we spelt somebody's name wrong, well, we'd hear about it. And if we left someone's name out, We would hear about it. Even worse, if we left someone's name out because we meant to. Woo! We might have a business meeting over that. And so, what I want you to see here, even as you look and your eyes glaze over these 12,000 and 12,000 and 12,000 names that you don't really recognize, I want you to understand that even in this, God does not stand for idolatry. God does not stand for judgment because Ephraim also was one that led his people into idolatry. God doesn't put up with this. And so, here they are in the 144,000. They're not mentioned, but their tribes are represented. And uh, many other groups have claimed to be in the 144,000. One of the most well-known, and you may have heard about, are uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses. At one time, the Jehovah's Witnesses, founded by Charles Taze Russell, claimed that only 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses would be in heaven. And that's what this number is. But as the years went on, they got a problem. Their believers started to grow past the number of 144,000. So then they said that there was a new light, a new revelation. And then they said, now the 144,000 are the most elite Jehovah's Witnesses. And then, so if you are the elite Jehovah's Witness, then you can go to heaven. If you are not part of the elite Jehovah's Witnesses and you are a regular Jehovah's Witness, you get to continue to live on this earth forever. I don't know if that's a blessing or not. And then if you are a bad Jehovah's Witnesses, or if you are not a Jehovah's Witness, you know where you're going to go. H-E double hockey sticks. And that's what they believe. But here's the thing. If you look at Scripture in context, the Scripture does what? It says the number 144,000, and then it shows the makeup of what that 144,000 is of Jewish men from these Twelve tribes. Scripture is clear on who these 144,000 are. And there are some people that believe under something called replacement theology. I'll never forget, I was uh, um, interviewing for a youth pastor position when I was at Pine Valley. And 
I mean, being a youth pastor, we didn't get into a whole lot of, of seminary there. And uh, I did go to seminary, and, and it was probably brought up, but I didn't remember at the time. So this little lady in the back, little sweet lady, said, Excuse me, what is your position on replacement theology? And I had no idea what replacement theology was. So instead of acting like I did, I said, I don't know, but I'll research and get to you. What replacement theology is, is the belief that the Israel is no longer God's chosen, that the church has replaced Israel. And that is dangerous. That is dangerous to think that when you hear about the 144,000, that you think it is going to be some leftover church members that didn't make the rapture. Why is this important? Folks, still, when you read your newspapers and look at your social feeds and watch your TV, you better make sure to know what's going on with Jerusalem. What's going on with Israel? Because here's the thing. The major problem with believing that the church is now the 144,000 is the continuing existence of the Jewish people throughout centuries. Israel, If Israel has been condemned by God, there is no future Jewish nation. And how do we explain the supernatural survival of Jewish people over the past 2,000 years despite Many horrific attempts to destroy them. Folks, I'm going to tell you, the church has not replaced Israel in God's plan. God has not forgotten Israel and will one day restore Israel to his intended role as the nation he has chosen. If you don't believe me, you can read about it in Romans 11. Well, the next thing we see is that heaven will not be bland. I'm glad to know that. I'm glad to know that heaven is not just one long preaching service. Right now, y'all are saying amen to that, right? But the truth of the matter is, is that heaven is so much bigger than a church service. I wouldn't want to go to a 24-7 church service. Heaven is going to be diverse. We see in verses 9 through 12, check it out. It says, after this, in other words, after all of this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. Isn't it great how John always brings the vision back to the throne? And it says they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches. When you see the palm branches, that is a sign of victory. They held palm branches in their hands and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Now, I, I can imagine it's pretty exciting for those that are Clemson fans and they get to go to Death Valley and they get to do the C-L-E-M-S-O. And I guess they just forgot how to spell it, so they wait a minute. And then they say, in, right? Is that how it goes? I'm going to get in trouble for that from several of you, but that's okay. But there's just something about it when you're in those stands and you hear that and you're yelling, you're like, Woo! I can't imagine what it's going to be like when we're in heaven, all shouting this. And it says, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God. 
forever and ever. Amen. Folks, heaven will have diversity. When it says a vast crowd, too great to count. Folks, there will be people, and it says it here, there will be people of many races, many colors, and many languages that will come to know Jesus as their Savior during the great tribulation. i got news for you. Everybody in heaven is not going to look like people from Homeland Park Baptist Church. They're not going to, they're all not going to be white and middle class. They're not all going to speak English. And somehow we're all going to understand what's going on. But folks, isn't it great to know that in heaven you don't lose your individuality? You don't lose a sense of who you were. You are still who, you are still that person you were on earth except now you are transformed and you are perfect. So will we know those that have gone on to heaven? Absolutely. Will we retain the things that God has given us and made us? Some of you, God has wired you differently. And me too. Praise God. We don't lose that individuality. We don't lose that special thing that God gives us when we go to heaven. It is only enhanced. So yes, you will know your loved ones in heaven. Yes, you will know Jesus in heaven. Yes, there will be people of color in heaven. Yes, there will be people that speak other languages in heaven. So you better get used to living with them now because you're going to be with them for eternity. And if you don't like that, you're on the wrong boat. Isn't it amazing? We see a glimpse of the individuality that we'll retain in heaven. Again, verse 9 says, Every nation tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne. Isn't it great to know you're not going to be dumber in heaven than you are now? It's it's not like we get it's not like our hard drive of our brain gets wiped and we all become robots and just raise our hands and play a harp and sing a song. That's not heaven. It, if anything to me that would be hell. God created you as an individual. God created you for His plan. He has a plan for you not only on this earth, but in the new earth as well. That's exciting. I think that one of the biggest problems we have in the church is we underestimate the awesomeness of heaven. Well, the third thing that we see is that great tribulation martyrs will be clothed in white. You see, the one of the 24 elders asked me, who are these who are clothed in white? Where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you are the one who knows. Then he said to me, these are the ones who died, who came out of the great tribulation, of the great suffering. They have washed their robes in blood of the lamb and made them white. So what we see in that passage is the tribulation martyrs are rewarded for their faith in Jesus not their sacrifice. In the worst of times this world will ever see, these martyrs are rewarded for their faith. And this is a thing I want everyone in here to see. They did not receive their white robes because they died during the Great Tribulation. They received their white robes because they accepted Jesus and they were washed in the blood of a lamb. When someone dies a heroic death, it is not a guarantee that they are in heaven. If someone dies a horrific death, that is not a guarantee that that person is in hell. The way we leave this earth is not dependent on where we will go. It's what we do with Jesus while we are here. And then we see 
that no noble sacrifice will help you gain heaven. It all depends on what you do with Jesus. Do you all not see how offensive it is for some people to think church attendance is something that earns you salvation? Or going on a mission trip earns you salvation? Or being nice to your neighbor when they're not nice, that earns you salvation? No, those don't earn you salvation. Those make you good people. What earns you salvation is accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. And then when Jesus is in you, you will do those things without even regretting it or trying to count it out for some kind of points. The tribulation martyrs are rewarded for their faith in Jesus, not their sacrifice. And then the the next thing that we see in verses 15 through 17 as we come to the close of the scripture is that believers will dwell with God in heaven. It says in verse 15, this is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. Praise the Lord, I'm never going to get a sunburn again. Amen. Listen, if you're redheaded and fair skinned, you'll, you'll get, you'll get a sunburn just thinking about sun. Then it says in verse 17, For the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water. Boy, that sounds just like Psalm 23, doesn't it? And it says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Being part of God's redeemed means that we will have direct access to God in heaven. Yes, we will be able to approach God and worship Him. Just like a child wants to crawl up into his or her daddy's lap. We will serve Him day and night. Folks, heaven is not an eternity of laying on a cloud eating bonbons and desserts and little Debbies and Sara Lees and all those other things. That's not, heaven is not for us just to get up there, get in a, a comfortable My Pillow commercial and just Live there for eternity. We will have jobs. We will have identities. We will have individualities. We will have purpose. We will have joy. And if you want to believe me, it will look a lot like the Garden of Eden. God created Adam to what? To tend the garden. To work the garden. And you're like, oh man, you mean I'm going to have to work in eternity too? Yes, we're going to be serving in eternity, but the difference is we won't have the curse set upon us that makes it so difficult to work. We will be serving God out of love, not because of the curse trying to work just to make a living. I don't know about you, but there are times where I want to do things for Donna just because I love her. And there are times where I hope that I and you will do things for God just because we love him. And I love the fact it says every tear will be wiped away in heaven. This is a promise for heaven, folks, not here. There will be tears here. There will be grief. As a matter of fact, these tears are what God gives you to deal with things that are going on in today's world. On this earth, we find strength in our tears. But in heaven, there will be no more sorry. There will be no more pain. And the struggle of the cursed of earth is gone. We will not be weeping over our wasted and sinful lives. 
God will wipe away the tears from all of those who have been suffering on earth. So in conclusion, so what? What's the big deal? What do we get out of this passage today? Well, I came up with just a few quick things. In verses 1 through 8, we see the believers receiving the seal to protect them through the time of the great tribulation. In verses 9 through 17, we see what it looks like, what believers, what it will look like for believers in heaven with God. All who have been faithful through the ages are singing before God's throne. The tribulations and sorrows are over. No more tears, no more sin. For all sins are forgiven. There's no more tears of suffering. There's no more suffering. The suffering is over. We will not have to attend. This is great. As a pastor, I'll never have to officiate a single funeral again. And you will never have to endure the grief of another funeral again in heaven. We should not live our life being oblivious to what is to come. As believers, we should not fear it. Although we are not included in the 144,000, we can imitate their commitment and zeal to share the gospel to a dying world today.